and welcome to Always Take Notes. If you're an aspiring author, you'll be excited to hear that this week's sponsors are Curtis Brown Creative, the renowned writing school affiliated to the major literary agency. Since launching in 2011, over 150 of their students have gone on to get major book deals, including acclaimed authors Jesse Burton, Claire Pooley and Kirsty Capes. CBC run a wide range of courses for writers at different stages of their creative journeys. Their new four-week online course, Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, is the perfect next step for any fiction writer struggling to weave the threads of their narrative together. Exclusive teaching videos, resources and writing tasks from best-selling author Laura Barnett will teach you the most useful theories of story structure and show you how to use them to shape your plot. Plus, all students will be given the opportunity to get individual feedback from one of CBC's expert fiction editors. Visit www.curtisbrowncreative.co.uk to find out more about all the courses on offer. Curtis Brown Creative have provided an exclusive discount for Always Take Notes listeners. You can use the code ATN20 for £20 off the full price of Plot and Story, The Deep Dive, or any other four or six week online writing course. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and I spoke with the novelist Monica Alley. We spoke to Monica about her smash hit debut, Brick Lane, about her recent ventures into screenwriting and about her latest book, Love Marriage. It's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Monica, welcome to Always Take Notes. It's really excellent to have you on the show. Can we start with Love Marriage, your new novel that's had this really fantastic reception? Could you tell us where the initial idea came from and then how how it began to take shape? I actually was working on two separate stories and one was about Harriet, although she wasn't called Harriet at that time. She was called Elizabeth, which turned out to be the wrong name. Anyway, um, Harriet, who is a North London, liberal, lovey, famous feminist, um, famous in particular for a memoir about all her lovers, all the men and all the women. And I wasn't sure that I was going to end up writing that as a novel. I also had another story on the go, which was about Yasmin, who is a junior doctor at a big London hospital. And it was about her love life. And again, I wasn't convinced that this was the the story that was going to turn into a novel. And I had then this light bulb moment, this very rare moment of genuine inspiration, because most of writing is perspiration. But um, this was a moment of inspiration. But I thought, what if I put them together? What if I um, brought these two rather different worlds into contact with each other? And then I knew instantly that it was going to be a lot of fun to write. And it was the the book that I was going to have to write. And am I right in thinking it swelled to 240,000 words once you once you started writing? Yeah, I could not stop. <laughs> it was, uh, and I worried about it because I knew I was writing too much I knew that I would have to be quite brutal with the cuts Um, and this has never been my process before I've always turned out pretty tight first drafts because I edit a lot as I go along and the sort of two sides of writing as I see them you know the sort of being in the flow and immersing yourself um, that kind of creative drive has always worked hand in hand with the more analytical, intellectual or craft side of um, structuring the story and putting all the pieces of the jigsaw together. Whereas for Love Marriage, it came out in a kind of headlong tumble (laughs) I don't think oh my god you know this is this is all wrong this is not how I'm supposed to be writing Uh, but actually when it came to the end and I, I I sat about cutting it I really did not need to have worried so much 
And I think what I learned from that was that it's not necessarily about my process, the process. Um, I think just every book maybe has a different way of coming into being. So, you know, hopefully I've learned to relax a little bit more about that. One thing I was thinking um, before we spoke is, did you have a sense when you were writing it of of where the, in the title, in Love Marriage, of where the stress and the intonation was? So was it a love marriage or was it love marriage? You know, or was that a deliberate ambiguity that you were playing with as you were putting it together? I love the ambiguity in the title and it, 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 it reads differently to different audiences, of course. I did an interview um, the other day with... Uh, an Indian magazine and of course um, that reader as lots of readers in India uh, would had taken it (laughs) as a story about what's known as a love marriage in India whereas readers here have often asked me what does that mean you know love marriage is it a um, an instruction like to, <laughs> to love marriage or uh, is it love sort of comma marriage uh, one coming before the other or love uh, you know love and marriage is something that people get you know people get the title wrong so they'll say love and marriage so um, I like that ambiguity and uh, you know in India most of the subcontinent People don't refer to arranged marriage. 97% of marriages, um, I was told the other day, are arranged marriages. And that's just called marriage, right? But here, we don't talk about love marriage because that's just marriage. And then we refer to an arranged marriage. So yeah, I was, I was sort of playing off those ideas. You've mentioned this project kind of having its own sort of creative energy, I guess. Um, did you approach it in a different way in terms of research or sort of fact finding? I had done a lot of research um, before I started writing the book. So um, that is, you know, the, the, the pattern that I'd followed for other books. So I did a lot of research about the medical profession, about hospitals, about care of the elderly wards, because that's where Yasmin, the protagonist, is situated. Um, And I've done a lot of research about therapy, partly by being in therapy myself, partly through reading. Um, But, you know, the, the point about research, really, I mean, you have to get certain things right, And I was lucky enough to have doctor friends who could check out medical stuff for me. But the point about research is you have to then put it away to it. it, I mean, it gives you the courage to to make things up and you don't want to be, in my view, dumping all of that research onto the page to show that you've done it. It's got to work for the story. Can you tell us about the hiatus between love marriage and between your previous novel with the untold story you've, you've talked elsewhere about your experience of depression and loss of confidence and how this stemmed from the the reception that 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 felt and this this kind of idea that you were being i suppose put in a box by some of the, the critical responses to your work how did you go about getting through that difficult period and how did you get back into writing so um yeah i did have a loss of confidence and i think it's a good thing to doubt yourself as a writer um, because you want every sentence and every page to be as good as it can be but a total loss of confidence is just you know catastrophic you can't you have to have some degree of self-belief as well in order to be able to write so I, I stopped writing as you say um, for a number of years and actually what got me back into writing was attempting to write for television tv dramas I mean basically because I was watching a lot of telly as as depressed people sometimes do and I thought oh maybe I can do that and then I set about trying to teach myself how to write a, a a teleplay and I read a lot of scripts and um yeah just uh sort of educated myself on that and then I worked with a number of different production companies um got 
script commissions, although nothing ever ended up on the screen. I just loved the process. Um, I loved learning something new. I also enjoyed the collaborative aspect. And more fundamentally, more importantly, perhaps, it just brought back some of the joy of writing. And it was a reminder that I've got to write no matter what. What were some of the scripts that you read that you felt were sort of particularly instructive or well-crafted or a kind of useful model for what it was you wanted to write? Well, um, I mean, some of them are not easy to find. You've got to dig around. I mean, some are published. Um, the BBC has some resources on its website where you can look at BBC screenplays. But really the ones that... Um, that I found, you know, much more intriguing and instructive were things like scripts for The Wire or Six Feet Under. Um, a lot of the big HBO productions that uh, almost read like a novel <laughs> in some ways, although I mean, that's a bit misleading because they, they work in, in a very different way. It's a different craft, it's a different skill, but the depth of characterization is the thing that appeals to me in those kind of shows. So a point that that's come up, we've had recently a number of, of British novelists who've also done screenwriting on, I think David Nichols and, and William Boyd as well. And a point that we asked them about was whether they were working with their TV stuff in this kind of traditional single writer model or in the, the US writer's room kind of multi-part under a showrunner way. With, with your TV stuff, which of those two traditions were you working in? Um, on my own, not not in a writer's room. I mean, the other kind of while we're on this sort of technique bit, we have this perennial question that we always put to, to novelists on the show, which is whether they are a, a plotter or a plunger. That's the kind of terminology that we've we stumbled upon. So the, the extent to which they have a, a narrative worked out um, in advance uh, or to which they kind of plunge in. And we've had people at, at either extremes and, and, and also in the middle. Um, we saw that you, you've said you've always have an ending in mind before you begin the first chapter, but this idea that you have a, a destination, not a route map, ideas to multiple routes and, and quite an organic process. Could you unpack a little bit how you, how you work in that, that area? Yeah, so for me, everything in writing is about character. And I always trust that if I know my characters well enough, they will lead me to, I mean, you know, there is some guiding. I don't want to overstate this. Uh, you know, uh, the sort of extreme um, end of both, the, uh, probably your plotters and your plungers would be um, Graham Greene, who referred to his characters coming out of the shadows and surprising him, and he was entirely led by them. Um, and at the other end would be Nabokov saying, my characters are galley slaves. <laughs> it was complete nonsense that the, the, the characters can sort of take over. Um, and I think the, the truth, even for them, probably, <laughs> lies somewhere in the middle so so there's a bit of each but I'm much more towards the side of the, the characters taking on a life of their own and I do roughly know where I think the book is going but for instance with love marriage I wasn't sure all the way through the writing or till very late on whether Yasmin would end up with Joe, end up with Pepperdine or end up with neither. And I think that was very helpful actually. So maybe that was a sort of knowing, not knowing. <laughs> but um, I, I think that made it easier for me to, to, to have the reader guessing because I was uncertain. Do you ever find that you, sort of to extend the following of the characters metaphor, do you ever kind of lose them? And if so, how do you <laughs> refine them again? Um, do you have any particular kind of methods going for a run, going for a walk to kind of help you clear your mind? 
I do. I mean, walking generally helps with if I get stuck or, you know, there's a sentence that just won't come out right. Or, But the characters, I feel that's a sort of different issue because, I mean, I, I can't start writing until I can hear them, <laughs> until I can hear the way that they speak the their tone of voice their cadence the rhythms of their language all of that so I, I haven't really experienced that thing of them leaving me you know sometimes I teach creative writing and a student will bring a piece of work that's not quite working for some reason the character's not coming off the page and I'll, I'll probably start asking questions about well where did she go to school and who was her best friend and what did her grandparents do and all sorts of stuff which at some stage a student might say but none of this is in the book it's not in the story <laughs> and I um, try to persuade them that it, yes it might be the tip of the iceberg that's shown but if you don't have the rest of the structure in place you know if you don't really know your character then it's sort of unlikely that your reader is ever going to feel that they have got to know your character and there's also sometimes a tendency I feel with um perhaps new writers perhaps other writers as well um and perhaps I'm guilty sometimes myself but I try not to do this that that attempt to characterize through um sort of a surface personality like decorating a character with quirks and ticks and a limp and an eye patch and uh, mannerisms and sort of signifiers it's not that those things uh, are, are relevant or um are necessary even or not fun to do but I would always encourage my students to think about I mean how I tend to put it is there's personality which is sort of surface level interactions and then there's deep character and character is action and action is character and the truest deepest character is seen or emerges when your your character is under stress so what do they do under stress? Action under stress equals character. Could we roll back now to the start of your career and where your interest in, in books and in writing began? We, it's right that you were, you were always reading as a child and then post-university you had these early jobs in, in publishing and as a copywriter. Yes. Um, I mean, I always, I always had my head in a book as a kid I, you know I'd walk along sometimes reading a novel um and then I you know I it never occurred to me really or I didn't allow myself to think that it was even a remote possibility that being a novelist was something available or open to me I had to earn a living um and yeah I didn't know anyone like me who was a novelist so I did you know I did a variety of other jobs in marketing and in publishing um, and then uh, uh, I became a freelance copywriter and it was only when um, I started having children got two kids that I actually started writing fiction I've uh, yeah, read that it was in the middle of the night when you couldn't sleep uh, that you started writing short stories how did you sort of progress from there? Did you send those short stories to an agent and, and then get representation? No, I never did anything with those short stories at all. How did I progress? My ambition wasn't really towards short stories. The novel was the thing for me, but it seemed crazy to attempt it. I mean, I didn't have any childcare and... Um, I was nursing my youngest still, she was just a baby, and I had a toddler as well. Um, and then my grandfather died, my mother's father, and we went to the funeral, which was up in Lancashire. And then we had happened, I mean, purely coincidentally, to have booked a holiday, which was 
uh, started the day after the funeral, and that was in the Lake District. And uh, yeah, there's just something quite galvanizing about attending a funeral. I mean, you know, life is, you only get so many days. <laughs> and, um, uh, so yeah, that's that's that was the day, the day after my grandfather's funeral that I sat down and my husband took the kids off for a couple of hours and I began um, writing what turned into Brit Lane. And could you tell us then about the, the journey of, of getting an agent and, and getting a publisher and then this kind of extraordinary experience of the, the book having a lot of um, publicity even before it was published? So, I mean, on the show, as, as we alluded to, we, we love to kind of unpick the, these mechanics of, you know, the how, how a career develops and these things. So, you know, we'd love to hear as, you know, in as much detail as you can recall. I know it's a while ago, but how all that, that piece all worked out. Yeah, God, it's ancient history. Um, it a bit randomly and haphazardly. So I didn't have a plan, um, but I had worked in publishing, as you mentioned earlier, and I had a friend from that time who was a copy editor, a desk editor, and she happened to be doing a maternity cover, again, as a copy editor at Transworld. And I was looking for a bit of friendly feedback on my early chapters. I thought it was way too soon to be thinking about, you know, sending it out or um, investing in a writer's and artist's yearbook. Is that what it's called? The writer's and, yeah. Um, so I sent it to her and she then rang up and said, would you mind if I showed it to an editor here? And I said, go ahead, thinking nothing of it, really. And then I had a message to say, um, do you have any more chapters? And I had another couple by that stage. And then, um, then they made me an offer. So... Uh, you know, I was, oh, we met for lunch, that's right. She asked to have lunch, and then she made me an offer um, there and then, which was astonishing. I had to I had to excuse myself and go to the loo and sort of jig up and down in front of the mirror. <laughs> and, of course, I wanted to say yes straight away, she said, come in for a meeting. And I met some other members of the, the team. And actually one of them said, you should really have an agent. Because I was, I was, you know, happy to just <laughs> sign anything. Because <laughs> it seemed so extraordinary to me. It, it, you know, and it was extraordinary. Um, but then I, uh, I took that advice and... Um, yeah, I got an agent. So, did that agent then sort of ship it around, and and was there a an auction for it? No, we. I, I didn't want to do that. I just wanted to. Um, I mean, I couldn't really believe it was happening. So it felt as though it might disappear. <laughs> if, um, I took it around and shopped it elsewhere. You'd scare um, them away. Yeah. Just like yes, please, we'll do it now. But you know, the I mean, the agent, of course, you know, got the money increased and stuff like that. Which, you know, that's that's why you have an agent <laughs> because um, they they um, they're more hard headed than <laughs> and not so overwhelmed by the idea that anyone might want your book. <laughs> And and this whole experience you had of of having success before it was even published is it right that you were you were on the Granter Young novelist list before the book had come out in two thousand and three? Yes, um, I mean, but they had read it, of course. It was improved. <laughs> it wasn't quite as mystical and magical as oh, they hadn't even seen it. They had read it, but it was pre-publication, so. Yeah, and I'm sure that gave the book a, a boost. And of course, the uh, the book was adapted into a film. 
you weren't involved in the film adaptation. You're adapting Love Marriage yourself. Um, why did you make the decision at that point to kind of let the filmmakers do their thing without your input? They did ask very early on, would, would I be at all interested in adapting it? And at that stage, I really was not. I wanted to carry on writing prose. And, uh, you know, it, it, I hadn't... Um, I hadn't even ever read a film script or a television script at that time. So it would have been kind of an absurd thing, I felt, for, for me to take it on. And they lined up a very good script writer, Abby Morgan, who has gone on to do, you know, many other things for um, both television and um films so I was I was happy with that choice and that um decision and then I they kept sending me scripts you know drafts of scripts and they would just pile up in the corner of my study and I didn't look at them at all um uh, my feeling was that either one should be properly involved and engaged or stay away from it because I think meddling from the sidelines would not have been helpful, you know, for me as well. I think it, I would have I would have found it frustrating because, of course, you were going to have different ideas. Um, and of course, it was going to be hard to see um, what was being cut out the whole time. So I, I just decided that I would see it um, after it had been filmed and I saw the rough cut you know, not an entirely finished film um, in a screening room somewhere in London. And Sarah Gavron, who is the director, um, this is another hiding in the toilet story. <laughs> when we got together um, afterwards with all the producers and some of the, you know, key, key staff on the film, I was saying, where is Sarah? <laughs> um, somebody told me, oh, she's hiding in the loo in, ca in case you don't like the film. <laughs> you can go and tell her that I, that I really like it. <laughs> and then she came out. What do you think, um, having had this, this huge success with Brick Lane, with your first novel, as, as your first novel, again, from, from the perspective of now, with the benefit of hindsight, like what was good about that and also what was challenging about it and did you feel a, a kind of element of of difficult second album syndrome in terms of following following that up oh there's a lot to unpack in that question what was good about it what was difficult about it I mean there were lots lots of good things and I think you know my my first reaction to that question is always well What's what's difficult about having a first novel that disappears, um, sort of unremarked and unlauded and unread? I mean, that's bloody difficult, I imagine. So I, I never, <laughs> I'm always very wary about complaining about anything that's difficult about having um, a successful first novel because compared to having a um, a novel come out and, and vanish, it's all upside, right? On the other hand, oh yeah, be, being honest now and, and looking back, I mean, I was sort of very blithe about, you know, how great everything was. And even the writing process, you know, people would ask me, how did you manage to write with such young children and so on I go oh you know it was fine I'd fit it into nap time and writing in the night and so on but actually the truth was I was completely exhausted and um it was you know it was hard it was really hard and the fact that um the book was published in a lot of different countries as well and there's a lot of um, pressure to go and um, support those publications and do interviews and do publicity while all that is gratifying I didn't you know I didn't want to be away from home as much as I was away from home I found it really really hard but I was sort of in denial about 
how hard I was finding it. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the fantastic novelist Monica Ali. It's time for the next instalment of our segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. This week we hear from the journalist and author James Ashton on the most important trait a writer should have. I think it's important to know your market, particularly if you're bringing a book out. Read widely what's selling, who's good, and that should impact how you treat your subject matter and the style of the product that you put out. I think stamina is very important, obviously. Um, switching from newspapers into something like an 80,000-word project is a big change. And for me, there was a, a shock. Um, book writing can be quite antisocial. So I think it's important to be able to enjoy your own company. Once you get past the research phase, it can be quite a lonely period ahead of you. That was James Ashton. And if you were interested in what James had to say, you can listen to our full episode with him now via our website, alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Monica Ali. And it's a rule of the show that we always ask guests about money and how money has related to their writing lives. How did the success of, of Brick Lane change things for you financially? It enabled me to carry on writing. And that was that was huge, you know, because it seemed like I had some guilt about not earning money, spending time writing a novel (laughs) or or short stories firstly, and then um, starting on the novel. Um, Because if I had the time to do that, then surely I could be having the time to earn some money and contribute to the household finances. So um, it made all the difference, made all the difference. And it also meant that um, I could carry on writing what I wanted to write, which was also huge. It meant that I didn't feel the need to I mean you know I think actually Simon's question referred to was it difficult uh, writing the second book I think I was um well just naive and sort of also bullheaded in writing whatever I wanted to write I mean I knew perfectly well uh that the smart move commercially would be to sort of parlay Brick Lane into a bit of a brand and keep, you know, build a readership and sort of, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not a marketing machine. I'm a writer and having some money in the bank certainly enabled me to not engage with any of that. You know, I was quite clear about writing what I wanted to write. I have a, like a couple of questions to follow up on that in terms of, you know, since then, have you, have you been a kind of full-time novelist? You said you'd done some teaching and, and some screenwriting and stuff, but um, oh, yeah, well, how is it, how has this, you sort of structured your, your life since then? And the other part, and this is, you know, going into the kind of nitty gritty, like we, we love to do, but with, with Brick Lane, was the thing that, that made it this big um, financial boon for you, was that the fact that it had sold in multiple territories or was it just that it sold a lot and so you had royalties? Like at what at what stage did you realise you were going to have this kind of windfall from from that project? Or was it the TV? Was it the film that, that then... Yeah. No, no. I mean, the film was nice, but no, that wasn't... The, no, the, the, the big thing was, um, well, the number of copies it sold. Yeah. In here and in the States, and yes, it sold into a lot of other languages. I mean, some of those are uh, uh, negligible for in terms of amounts of money. I mean, there was, I remember there was a Spanish edition and then there was a Catalan Spanish edition, which, you know, probably I earned probably 2p or something, you know, a few pounds, whatever. But I loved, I loved the fact that there was a, Catalan Spanish edition you know it was really exciting for some reason that somebody had bothered to do that um but yeah the the, the main money is just from selling a lot of copies 
And yeah, the, the second part of my question is how have you, have you written full-time, worked full-time as a novelist since then? Or you know, how do these other bits of you of the teaching and the, script, and the script writing stuff, how does that all fitted together in the time since then? Um, are you asking from a money perspective or? Sort of both really, both money and time. Yeah, well, you know, time is one thing because I've also been raising a family over those years. So that's you know takes up an awful lot of time so I wouldn't say full time in a kind of Charles Dickens way where somebody else does everything for you that's you know and uh, that that's never happened in my life um yeah it's been my primary source of income but then there's been you know years when I've earned very little from any any source you know and I've been I've been lucky in that I'm not the sole breadwinner so that's been feasible. Moving on to your subsequent books um set in Portugal one set in uh the kitchen of a London hotel and one is about Princess Diana uh where did the ideas for those come from and do you think there's a kind of unifying thread across them do you think there's a preoccupation that that they share? So Anatasio Blue, the the one set in a Portuguese village, very much inspired by the fact that for many years we had a house in a Portuguese village, or just outside a Portuguese village, um, in a very rural part of the Alentejo. Um, the in the kitchen, I suppose. I, I mean. It's set in London, but also in a Lancashire mill town. Uh, well, ex-mill town, really, because, you know, the mills have sort of closed down. And I grew up in one of those towns, so part of it comes from that. Um, I've lived in London for, you know, m most of my life, so um, that's the connection there. And then I suppose the one that people see as even more left field would be um, Untold Story, which is about Lydia, my fictional princess, and the sort of what if story, what if she hadn't died. Um, and I think, you know, I remember um, critics referring to that as, you know, it's a curious marriage of author and subject matter or it's a bewildering choice of subject matter um and you know i i i get that that people were surprised um since i mean since then you know i could i could point out some of the similarities beneath the differences so with Nasneen, who's the heroine of Brick Lane, she's a virgin bride, she's unworldly, she's uneducated, has an arranged marriage to a much older man, suffers from the scrutiny of the wider community, has an affair, and then decides that um, another man is not the way to salvation and reinvents herself, her life. And on the other hand, Lydia in Untold Story, entirely different. She is a virgin bride. She's uneducated, unworldly, has an arranged marriage to a much older man, suffers a scrutiny of the outside world, has an affair, um, and then decides that a man isn't the way towards salvation and reinvents herself and her life. So, you know, Yes, of course, they are opposite ends of the spectrum um, in society, but there's an even more fundamental thread that binds them together and that is really the, the thing that's motivated me in a lot of my writing, which is that Nazneen is a brown woman in a sorry she speaks very little English she's the kind of person that somebody might pass in the street and 
almost dismiss or not think about too much as having a deeply complex interior life, as being, as being <laughs> deeply human and just, yeah, just not granting her her full humanity. And I think in a weird way, that's exactly what happens or can happen with massive celebrity, that we are prone to dismiss those people in quite a cruel way as well, as not having, um, just not granting them their full humanity either. And I think all of those assumptions, knee-jerk reactions, um, shallow readings of others is something that I'm interested in uh, untangling and putting under the microscope. I guess that was what my uh, question was getting at is that reviewers remarks on how sort of how much of a departure your subsequent books were but the, but they they had some commonalities with with Brick Lane. Mm-hmm. Following on from from Rachel's question about you know with with these other books and this this kind of unfair critical response that, that you were feeling what was the the reaction internally from your from your publishers were they supportive and were you staying were you with the same editors and 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 the same house throughout that time yeah I was although I've changed publishers now for love marriage I mean I you know I didn't have a I wasn't under contract and my agent suggested that we I'd never actually had that um thing of going to an you know the the manuscript being auctioned so that was kind of exciting and fun to do this time around yeah I I'd have to say you know, I, I, I think this is quite a, a, a difficult point to make. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to explain it clearly, but, you know, the, I'd like to be able to draw a distinction between receiving criticism or negative reviews or whatever, which, of course, I, you know, don't like it as much as anyone else doesn't like them. But that's not the thing. That's not the thing that... Um, in the end, not my confidence. Um, and it took me <laughs> a few years of therapy to understand this. You know, it's not something that I was aware of, but it was the sense that um, the work was being perceived as not authentic, that I, you know, so I would get asked this question a lot. Are you trying to get away from something? Are you trying to get away from Brick Lane? Are you, you know, wh- why are you not staying on that track? And really what it felt to me inside, although I could not have articulated it at the time, was that I wasn't being truthful in some way, that I was trying to, you know, what, escape my ethnicity or what, you know, it was, it's kind of insulting when you think about it so I mean of course I have an interest in my Bengali heritage my father's Bengali uh, I was born in Dhaka but I've lived here all my life my mother's English and you know this country is what I know so that idea that I wasn't sort of allowed or I was being a bit fake was a thing that I really really struggled with you know, because it felt like a denial of who I was allowed to be. So it was only through the therapy that I could sort of understand what it was that had, um, yeah, led to that sort of collapse of confidence and depression and so on. So, I mean, I don't wish to deny that, you know, oh, you know, it's tough getting criticism, I think, you know, most writers, if they're honest, would prefer to have rave reviews than negative ones. But there's really something else, you know, that was going on as well. Does that make any sense? I mean, it's very, it's kind of difficult to explain. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's, that's kind of clear. I mean, it makes me think of um, a Sierra Leonean writer we had on, on the show who, um, Aminata Fauna, who wrote her, her first book that was a, a memoir of her father there. And then similarly wrote um, subsequent novels, which were set in, in very different settings. And she also faced, I think, um, 
you know some of these some of these questions i mean i wonder what what do you feel about some of the the broader societal discussions that have taken place about who has a right to tell what story and these ideas of authenticity and, and appropriation which have been so much in in the kind of discourse for want of a, a less pretentious word in the past few years well you know i think one of the most damaging pieces of advice that's been banded around eternally for writers is write what you know um you know i i would say write what you want to what you're interested in what excites your curiosity and then do your research go and find out about it i mean it, it's you know that 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 idea of trespassing into areas that are beyond our experience is a no go is ultimately would be the death knell of fiction you know but maybe it explains why there's so, there has been so much interest in auto fiction recently um that you know we, we can't tell anyone's stories apart from our own but you know that doesn't actually solve any problem because you can't write even auto fiction without involving other people I mean, nobody grows up uh <laughs> in total isolation you are necessarily um telling other stories from your perspective um so I, you know, I think as writers, we need to reserve the right to be engaged in all aspects of the human experience and then do the research and then trust in our empathy and our creative powers. Um, otherwise, we'll never go beyond gazing at our own navels. I think I read somewhere as well that you said that it would uh, result in just lots of memoirs, which, although popular, um, would make quite a limited uh, reading pool. Uh, yes um, yeah auto fiction and memoirs there has been also a, an increase i think in interest in memoirs that that is true i mean you know you you can't imagine somebody writing like tolstoy now can you really taking that sort of um position of authority and all-knowingness i mean um that 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 would be hard to emulate these days so yeah I, I'm not um you know fiction evolves and different styles of fiction will, will keep coming along and that is all to the good and to be celebrated but fundamentally yeah that I mean the clue is in the word isn't it we we make things up I, I, and that that's something that in love story in love marriage that there's also um some references to because Yasmin's father at one stage is very angry with her for writing about the love marriage in the book which is the story of um Yasmin's mother and father getting together and he's furious with her when he when she thinks that he's going to be proud he says what's you know what is the difference between this creative writing and telling lies it's interesting that you brought up love marriage again here because i was interested to ask where do you see that fitting into this broad experience because in some ways that is a return to the the british asian experience and the, the some of the territory you started out in brick lane and this book has been extremely well received it's had you know really fantastic reviews and stuff like that how do you feel about both having in some ways return to the some of the subject matter you started with and then the the reception that the book has got see i just refute the premise of your question okay so so nasneen in brick lane as i've mentioned earlier she's um working class from a rural village background in Bangladesh. She lives in Tower Hamlets, which is a deprived area of London. She's uneducated and speak English. She doesn't have a job until she takes on some sewing. Um, Yasmin, on the other hand, is born in London. She's thoroughly British, though her parents are originally from India. 
Um, she's highly educated, she's professional, she's a doctor, and she lives in a, you know, a nice, respectable suburb of London, and she's middle class. So it makes me wonder whether a white writer who had written 20 years ago about a white working class family in a poor neighborhood, um, a tight-knit community um, with, you know, little education and one set of family issues and dynamics. If they then wrote 20 years later about a middle-class white family who are professional and um, live in a nice neighborhood and have a different set of family issues and dynamics I wonder if they would be asked oh you've gone back to writing about a white family I mean it's just sort of I think all white families are automatically granted their uniqueness and all brown families are somehow lumped together as one. I hear your point on that but I mean as as you've alluded to yourself like this was a in the way the books were perceived rightly or wrongly you know that that was a factor and that's I don't think that that that's necessarily a legitimate point I, I can I can very much understand the, the the point that you're making but I think also do you think that that distinction of complete difference is one that the publishing establishment had or that the the critical establishment or that you know many of your readers would have held rightly or wrongly um I mean I tried to avoid the reviews but I probably you know I might sit down and read them all one day and I've had snippets from my publisher and stuff but sometimes you can't avoid them right so um we went to stay in Bristol with my in-laws um last month and my mother-in-law being proud that I've got another book out had pinned a a, a review onto the fridge so you know there there it was as I was eating my cornflakes and I couldn't avoid it and the headline was something like um brick lane for 2022 but with more sex you know and it's so vapid and it's so stupid um and ludicrous but you know what can you do uh I mean it's not it's it's not in any way an accurate reflection of the book but as you're hinting at in your question it's a good selling line you know it's um I'm sure that would bring readers to the book the fact that it happens to be untrue is a minor inconvenience <laughs> yeah I don't mean it's a minor inconvenience. I mean, I find it really annoying. Uh, you know, as I said before, I'm a writer, not a marketing machine. We had um, Johnny Geller on the show and he was talking about, obviously he doesn't see it as untruthful, but when he's pitching books, it's helpful for people sometimes to have that referent saying this X meets Y, um, just because it gives people something to sort of hold on to, I guess, intellectually, to sort of understand what it is, even though it's something in its own right that is not sort of nodding or in, in thrall to either of the works that it's being compared to. It's just something that is a useful sort of psychological tool. Yeah, but that's a different point, I think, that you're making. Yeah. That's a separate and different point. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of our time. So I wanted to end with a question that kind of takes a step back and ask about some of your kind of influences or writers that you've admired in the in the past. You've you've mentioned Jane Austen. Um and I was heartened that you brought up Grey and Green, because uh, I noticed that you've written introductions and sort of uh, conclusions to his work. Um in what ways do those writers in particular or others uh inspire? Uh well I think I mean Jane Austen m m most obviously um in connection to love marriage actually, because she wrote constantly about courtships, engagements, marriage, and through that supposedly rather narrow domestic prism, she actually gives us a lot about the world at the time, about um, power structures and class and money. She's very, very precise about money, uh, position of women and so on. And today, with Love Marriage, completely different landscape and Yasmin's a young professional, etc. 
Um, but I still think that the expectations and um, customs and rituals and family dynamics around uh, a proposed wedding can still be a really useful lens onto wider society. And a final final question from me. Um, could you tell us what your what your next projects are, or if you if you've got any on your horizon, and and both with um, fiction, but also whether you're continuing with the screenwriting as well. Well, I'm adapting Love Marriage for television, so that is taking up all of my time at the moment. Could you tell us a bit about that and how you know how that feels as a as a different discipline that you've immersed yourself in in the past years and and how that yeah what tell us a bit about that experience? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm really enjoying it because I get to spend more time with my characters. Um, it's exciting because there was an auction for the screen rights, and I've um, I've gone with new pictures who, I mean, they've done a lot of stuff for the BBC and for Sky and other places. Catherine the Great was one of theirs. Uh, White House Farm, Des, um, they're really, they're just brilliant. They're really good. And the, you know, the major challenge is, is structuring and they're very useful for me to, you know, helping me with that. Um, I mean, there's a lot of story in love marriage. So, it, you know, I think the usual challenge, adapting a novel for, television is often that that tv is just such a story hungry medium that you know you can quickly run out of story and you have to invent new stuff for for the screen but in fact with love marriage there's so much story going on that the the key issues have been uh structural in that you know something that happens later in the book might need to be brought forward or something that's happened off stage in the book, we need to then actually get onto um, a scene. But you know, it, I just I really enjoy the process. So, uh, and, I, and I'm still learning. You know, it, and it's good to have people who can um, sort of guide me, as it were. Brilliant. Well, look, thank you for a fascinating and, and wide-ranging discussion, and wishing you all the best with everything going forward. Thank you. That was the Always Take Notes interview with Monica Alley. Her website is monicaalley.com and her latest novel, Love Marriage, is published by Little Brown. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello, it's us again. Uh, Rachel, what was your uh, takeaway from the interview with Monica? I felt that was a very honest conversation about the toll that writing being in the public eye, having your work reviewed can take. I've seen everyone reading Love Marriage on the tube, so I think it was um it was a gr- great to get her while um while she's been doing other press. What about you? Yeah, I thought it was it was a kind of powerful conversation about some of the challenges of of having a huge hit, you know, particularly when it's when it's your debut. And I think she she spoke pretty candidly about that. I mean, I think it's it's difficult because people are wary of of talking about that because they feel that it'll be regarded as sort of, you know, much less difficult than never getting published at all. But I think clearly having a, a smash like that and then deciding what to do afterwards or what direction to go creatively and professionally is a challenging thing. And it's good to see her kind of back striking um, a real vein of success again with the new novel. Um, Rachel, what have you been up to of late? I am currently in that phase which I enjoy the most which is scouting around for ideas I'm hoping to do a couple of profiles um some kind of chunky things to get stuck into over the summer so that's currently what I'm doing how about you 
So I've been reading a lot of documents for a story I'm working on, which is why I'm slightly bleary-eyed, but <laughs> it's good. And it's also been a different kind of reporting to interviewing, which is what I usually do. It feels kind of easier in some ways and that you're just um, going through paperwork, but it's almost a, like, I suppose, a more academic exercise. It feels a different way of pulling a story together, but it is very interesting. And I'm looking forward to bringing this piece forward towards fruition, I hope, in the next uh, month or so. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikam. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes. On Twitter, on Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.